So, you've got an idea for a business. The store of your dreams. There's just one thing to figure out. Everything. That's why Shopify's all-in-one commerce platform makes it easy to sell online, in person, and everywhere else. Sell on social media. Source products with an app to get that first sale feeling. It's the only solution that gives you everything you need to sell everywhere you want. So when you're ready to bring your idea to life, power it up with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash listen. Mixed behind all this for us uh, in Sweden is the fact that we are uh, we used to be number one when it came to exporting music uh, with ABBA, and now we're number one when it comes to exporting violent criminals. And uh, we are uh, outside of Mexico. We have the largest amount of bombings and grenade violence uh, in a peacetime country. So you, you can can see that many have realized we are not that country that we used to be. And if we don't do anything about it now, it might be too late. Hello, welcome back to the Brendan O'Neill Show with me, Brendan O'Neill, and my special guest this week, Eva Arpi. Eva, welcome to the show. Thank you. Very good to be with you. Uh, It's great to have you on. It's always good to chat with you. We've had a few chats over the years, and I feel like there is an awful lot for us to talk about at the moment. You, for listeners who don't know, you are a prominent writer in Sweden. You're a Swedish blogger, columnist, substacker, bit of a troublemaker, I would say, bit controversial every now and then. Um, and or I think always talking sense on issues to do with Sweden and Europe more broadly. So it's good to have you on at this time in particular. And I want to kick off by asking you about the fallout from the terror attack that Sweden has just recently suffered. So it took place in Brussels, not in Sweden, but it was an attack on a, a, a bunch of Swedish football fans. Two were killed. One was injured carried out by a Tunisian man who we now discover escaped from prison in Tunisia, um, claims to be associated with the Islamic State. A horrible terrorist attack on Swedish citizens. I believe it's causing shockwaves in Sweden. I wanted to ask you what the response has been in Sweden, what the atmosphere is like. Is it a big issue there? Are people worried now about their own safety? Well, first off, I I'm sure I'm labeled a troublemaker, but I find myself sort of innocent in the in the sense that it's very easy to be a troublemaker in Sweden. You just have to not agree with like the the current consensus, then you're a troublemaker. So it's a very, I I, I am a troublemaker, but it's a very I'm a very mild troublemaker. If if you if it would have been in any other context, but this, the the strange thing. With the terrorist attack uh, in Brussels, is that it hasn't made that much of a splash, so to speak, in 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 Swedish debate because it's been so overshadowed by uh, the events taking place in Israel and Gaza, and the huge demonstrations we have had in Sweden, and ongoing demonstrations in support of uh, Gaza. And um, and and then some strange. We've had like a an ongoing propaganda campaign against Sweden that that in in Muslim countries that is being uh, it's like a information warfare that 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 they are accusing Swedish uh, government agencies to kidnap Muslim children uh, in an attempt to take away their identity and uh, in an in an Islamophobic. Um, motive so uh, during these demonstrations there's been calls for uh yeah kill all the jews basically and uh, and also how dare you accuse hamas of kidnapping 20 kids when you swedish government are kidnapping thousands of muslims and this is on Sagel's story in the middle of stockholm thousands of people are turning up so for a lot of us the terrorist attack is just sort of mixed in with it, with all this. The 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 Allahu Akbar that was like that he shouted when he killed two Swedes and injured a third, sort of like just seamlessly. It was from the seventh of October attacks when, of course, the massacre perpetrated by Hamas. They were also um, screaming Allahu Akbar. So it's it's been uh, hard to. Um, 
to really sort things out. What are we talking about? Because it, it sort of blends together. Mm. Uh, yeah, I agree with that. And um, I really want to ask you about Swedish people's response to the calamity in Israel, the the Hamas pogrom against Israelis, because um, I've seen some disturbing scenes from Sweden in relation to that. Uh, but just on uh, just on the terrorism in Brussels, I think you're right. It's very easy for these things to kind of blur into each other. Or one thing that I've noticed with terrorist attacks in the UK, and we've had many over the years, very, very serious ones, like the Manchester Arena bombing, which killed 21 mainly young people, an attack in London Bridge, an attack in other parts of London where, you know, significant numbers of people have been killed amnesia kicks in very quickly and we're almost encouraged to forget about these attacks. And uh, I remember uh, uh, not long ago, it was the fifth anniversary of the Brussels bombing in which I think 35 people were killed. Uh, I think I think it was five years ago. And even I had forgotten about that because there is this culture of amnesia around terrorism. Do, do you think that's something that's kicked in already in Sweden in relation to the attack in Brussels? There's an, Because sometimes... It's important to untangle how people respond to events, but sometimes it's important to untangle why people are not responding to events, why there's a, a silence or a lack or an absence where you might expect there to be some kind of discussion or some kind of uh, reflection. So it, 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 has it just been a kind of silence, a, a forgetting, a desire to move on as quickly as possible from that? Yeah, I actually think you make a great point of uh, not only the amnesia, but the encouraging of that amnesia. It's a sort of encouraged to move on. And I think I think it was you who wrote, you wrote a great piece a few years back when the ludicrous encouraging English and British people to don't look back in anger after the Manchester bombing. And it's still like when I think about it, it still makes me angry. I look back in anger. I'm not British, but it makes me angry to even suggest that you should not look back in anger when people are being murdered. And uh, so that was actually one of the first responses from our prime minister and our ex-prime minister, who's uh, Magdalena Andersson, who's the leader of uh, the Social Democratic Party, which is uh, by far now uh, in the polls the, the largest party. And she said that we should um, basically manage how we like lower the voices, uh, have an, a nicer tone. And uh, our prime minister, Ulf Kristersson, who's the leader of the moderate party, the right wing party, he said that uh, just because it's legal doesn't mean that it's suitable or it's, uh, it's, uh, it's good to do it. So, And that's one of the things he's been echoing since uh, the the burning of the Quran made by uh, an Iraqi uh, citizen, and it's just, it just seems like it's an it's a reflex. Like now, now it's not the time to feel anger, and I feel it's the total opposite. And and I think that this is something, uh, even when the more might be fitting that we are focusing on the developments in Israel, but we should return to this because Swedes are being. Uh, targeted for being Swedes. And you have people that are very hostile to Sweden, living in Sweden. And uh, so we should return to it. And uh, the tone police are, they they, they must be uh, confronted because the natural response is to be angry and to look for, like, is this something that is condoned in wider circles? Who are condemning the attacks? And what's often the the case is uh, during these things is that very few demonstrations were were held by Muslims or mosques or Muslim organizations condemning the terrorist attack in Brussels against uh, the Swedes. And the same can be said for uh, the Hamas massacre. It's been the total opposite. The first responses to the Hamas massacre was, for many, was basically good on the Palestinians. When it came to the um, attack against the Swedes, there is sort of a sense that you get from these people that what goes around comes around. It's not exactly that you condone it or you think it's great, but it's, well, what did you expect? I I might not be uh, my calmest self 
uh, at the moment. And uh, since uh, the 7th October and the terrorist attack. And um, I would say that people are, there's a, there is a shift a little bit in the public sentiment when it comes to these issues, I hope. And people are starting to realize like, this is not how, how we can't live like this. Yeah, I think what what you refer to as tone policing is a, is a very well a very good way to describe it, and we see that all the time in the UK after the terrorist attacks we've had. It's like you know you can't they they do want you to respond, but they want you to respond in a very passive way. They want you to respond in a regretful way. You know, lay some flowers, maybe put up an, an image on your social media page for a day or two, but then you know, as you say. The great Oasis song was marshaled to the cause of saying, don't look back in anger. So those are the emotions you can't feel. You can't feel angry. You can't feel infuriated. You certainly can't feel questioning of how this can happen in our society. As you say, who who might support it? Uh, what communities are these ideas taking hold in? You can't ask those questions. And the, the accusation that is used against people who express the wrong emotions in response to terrorism, who get angry rather than just sad, is that they are going to whip up Islamophobia. And one of the most striking things I've seen in Europe, across Europe over the past 10 years, has been this instant Pavlovian response, which says, you know, as soon as a bomb goes off, you will see commentators saying, listen, calm down everyone, otherwise there'll be Islamophobia. It's like, as soon as a radical Islamist kills people, their first thought is, oh no, what about the Muslims? Uh, you know, are they going to be okay? Which is a very strange response when you think about it. Do you have a similar dynamic in Sweden? Is there, it, what's the discussion on Islamophobia like in Sweden? It's basically, it's very, very similar. And it's similar, uh, sometimes you think that you're a unique country as a Swede or something, but then you look at how the discussions are taking place in other countries. And of course, there are differences, but there are a lot of similarities. And this immediate response of thinking about how are the Muslims doing when uh, there is an Islamist attack? Sometimes it's even before uh, it was known that it was uh, Anders Bering Breivik who committed the terrorist attack in Norway. People were twittering like, now remember... All Islamists are Muslim, but not all Muslims are Islamists. And these were prominent liberals and prominent people. And then one Sweden Democrat stopped writing about how awful Muslims are having it when there's dying Norwegians lying on the street. And immediately the attention switched over to his tweet because he was sort of suggesting it was not clear exactly what was wrong with it but it was they knew that it was something islamophobic but what he was saying was basically what we are saying now that it's a shift in focus that immediately takes place and this is uh, this has been the case after the attack during 7th of october because what what i've done my wife thinks that i'm maniacal when i've done this but i've gone back and i looked at each and every account of the, the signatories of the appeal uh, to track back how did they react then uh, when, when we knew that the, that the massacre has had taken place. What did they write? What did they post? And what you find is that uh, most of the signatories did not write anything. And a lot of our prominent um, writers in the culture sections and uh, at the biggest papers and authors and politicians uh, and also Muslim like imams that are, that are often on the payroll of the of municipalities for peace projects or like dialogue between religions how did they react they reacted some many of them reacted with joy and it's always liking insane tweets and some responded just like we were talking about like saying oh this will be even worse for people in, in Gaza and of course they were right but if that is your response to that immediately, then you're saying something ab about yourself. And I, I, I would say that the 7th of October is like a flare rocket going up. And all of a sudden, it's visible where everybody is standing. And it's been sort of uh, dusk or dark, so you haven't been able to really, really see everybody. And all of a sudden, you see where everybody's standing. So, oh, you're standing over there. You think the most important thing right now is to discuss if it's 10 or 40 babies that's been had their head chopped off. Oh, you're standing over there. 
You immediately believed Hamas propaganda, the only source that Israel had bombed a hospital. That's what you believe, and, and you still do it. And so I think this is a, this is a very good opportunity to see uh, their moral compass and uh, where they are standing in regards to Jews, uh, Islam, Islamism, and what, they're, what they are ready to condone in the name of what they term justice. Purchase new wiper blades from O'Reilly Auto Parts today and we'll install them for free. See better and drive safer with O'Reilly Auto Parts. Oh, 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 O'Reilly Auto Parts. Hi, it's Brendan here. I just wanted to remind you that you can still buy my book. It's called A Heretic's Manifesto, Essays on the Unsayable. And I've really been blown away by the response to it from readers, reviewers, Spike supporters. People really like this book, and I think you're going to like it too. It covers all the insanities of our time, from climate change hysteria through to COVID authoritarianism, through to the trans ideology. And it basically makes the case for more freedom of speech, more debate, and more heretical thinking to challenge the conformism of our times. So what are you waiting for? Go to Amazon right now and order my book, A Heretic's Manifesto, Essays on the Unsayable. And now on with the show. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. I think the past two or three weeks have been the most revealing moment in Western politics for a very, very long time in terms of, as you say, a flare has gone up and we can see things more clearly now in terms of where people are and how horrible where they are really is. You know, the kind of, the, the veil has been ripped aside and we can see the the ugly face behind so-called social justice or wokeness or whatever else it might be. Um, particularly on Sweden then, let's just, I, I did want to ask you about the Koran burning stuff because that is quite well known around the world. And that's one of the reasons you mentioned earlier um, that Sweden is it's kind of being bullied at the moment by lots of um, Muslim majority countries, certainly by the leaders of those countries. A lot of that comes down to the fact that uh, Sweden and also Denmark have had some Koran burnings in public. Last time I was in Sweden uh, in July this year, there was one on, when I was there outside the parliament, I think, in Stockholm. And I want to ask you what the atmosphere is like now in relation to something like the Koran burning. So is there a suggestion that the attack in Brussels on Swedish citizens might be a consequence of um, Swedish disrespect for the Koran, as some people would see it. Are people starting to wake up to the fact that, you know, freedom of speech in Sweden for Swedish people, all Swedish people, is rather more important than the sensitivities of Erdogan in Turkey or the leaders of Iran or the leaders of Pakistan? How are people understanding that kind of global battle that Sweden has found itself in almost accidentally. There are many people in Sweden, they uh, think that it's wrong to burn the Quran and that it's wrong to just insult the religion. And uh, it's not nice to do that. So why would you do that? And I think uh, it is sort of, if you just take that part and you ask people about it, then I would say it's uh, the, the 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 majority opinion is that you should not be able to to ins- like burn the Quran like that. It's it's awful. But if you what I've seen is that the people in in the public sphere, people writing in the papers and journalists and uh, academics, many of them are waking up to the fact that we, they were wrong. So people have been admitting that they they have had the wrong position in in public. And uh, it's been it's an ongoing development, but it's it's visible. So there's uh, two trends really, and and I mean I'm I'm not saying that all sports journalists are stupid because it's not true, but some of them are uh, at least not. This is not they're not w- well versed in the complexities of these issues or why freedom of speech is important. So. Like this was a moment where f- soccer and uh, politics and religion mixed in a weird way. So you had sports journalists feeling that they had to write something, and they wrote some really, really stupid things. Uh, some of them uh, where they just okay, now it's uh, it's it's taking its toll on soccer fans. Now it's time to stop this freedom of speech thing. So, but I, I, I'm not sure if they will return to the subject and if that made any dent in, this, in anything, but it was, uh, you sort of felt like uh, 
you wanted to take a ball and just kick it very hard in their face, like shut up and don't write about this ever again. But um, mixed behind all this for us uh, in Sweden is the fact that we are uh, we used to be number one when it came to exporting music uh, with ABBA, and now we're number one when it comes to exporting violent criminals. And uh, we are uh, outside of Mexico. We have the largest amount of bombings and grenade violence uh, in a peacetime country. And people are there. The, the criminal gangs and the clans, the, the most spectacular thing is, of course, the, the shootings, the killings and the death patrols uh, and the contract killers that are often kids themselves and the grenades and the bombings and that they're going after relatives. So there are no, no holds barred. People uh, that are like cousin of a criminal has to flee. But that's just the tip of the iceberg. The criminal clans in Sweden has a, how do you say, their annual income is around 50% of the Sweden Swedish state budget. So it's 10% of the GDP that the criminal clans in Sweden are really. And, and we are also becoming one of the main transit countries for cocaine, so this is like this was the debate the days before uh, Hamas massacre and then the terrorist attack. So there is a shift in mood in Sweden that I would say that even uh, so I have friends I've known my whole life or one of them uh, he cancelled his membership in the old communist party the left wing party because they were not communist enough and he was very disappointed. And I have friends who's been in ship to Gaza. It's been organizers within the Palestinian uh, cause, and they are shifting, and they've shifted. Like so, you, you can you can see that many have realized we are not that country that we used to be, and if we don't do anything about it now, we will. It might not. It might be too late. Um, I I did want to talk to you about what is happening with Sweden. Actually, that is something I find very very interesting. I've been to Sweden many times. I love Sweden. I've got lots of Swedish friends. Um, I think it's a great country, even now. I think it's a great country, but uh, lots of strange and curious and bad things are happening there. And we just have to be very honest about that. And I want to start off by asking you, you've mentioned it already, and we're all thinking about it all the time, which is the atrocity of the 7th of October in Israel and the fallout from that, not only in the Middle East, but around the world. And one of the elements of the fallout have been some pretty shocking demonstrations in America, in Britain, in Sweden, where people have either outright expressed support for Hamas or certainly got very close to doing so. We've seen religious extremists on the streets of London calling for jihad against the Jewish state, um, chanting Allah Akbar in uh, Trafalgar Square. And as I pointed out in a piece I wrote, that will have been those will have been the last words that many of those families in Israel heard before they were burnt alive or shot to death or whatever else might have happened to them. Um, but the, probably the most disturbing thing I've seen was from Sweden. I think I'm pretty sure it was in Stockholm. There was a large demonstration pro-Palestinian in, in quote marks. Really, these are all just anti-Israel at which people were chanting no Zionists in our streets. Um, to me, that was incredibly chilling because you don't need a PhD in semantics and language to know what was being said there. That was, it was essentially, we, we don't want the Jews here. That's what people are saying when they're saying no Zionists in our streets. You know, Sweden is not a Zionist country. It is not governed by a, a Zionist nationalism. So when people are saying no Zionists in our streets, it's, it's, it's pretty clear what they mean, isn't it? And that's quite chilling, I think. From the ocean to the sea, Palestine will be free. I mean, it's uh, where's where's Israel in that equation? Couldn't see it there from the river to the sea. I mean, it's uh, the the strange thing is is that many of the people who are have been warning that the thirties are here again, and like they're meaning, of course, the German thirties. And uh, now th this is this is how the thirties began. This is how the thirties began. Many of them are nowhere to be seen they are and they are not writing about this and the response has been very muffled or strained or nothing at all and because of course they have uh, their lesson what, what they took away from never again was a majority can never uh, must never be too critical or targeting a minority 
so the lesson they took away was that if the, it's a minority doing this chanting and standing for anti-Semitism, they really, their hands are, are tied behind their backs, really. But of course, what many Jews took away from Never Again uh, is that they didn't want to be uh, massacred or uh, uh, the, the victim of a genocide again. So there's uh, two different ways and, and many much of the left is on the, uh, we have to have uh, intersectional analysis. That was basically the takeaway from the Holocaust for them. And for m- many of us, uh, <laughs> basically on the right or the or many Jewish people, they just feel like it should be okay to be Jewish and walk around in the streets of Sweden. And the sad truth is that you can't, or or you take a huge risk. And which is led by an imam and his wife and a few others, and they had like a cooperation together with uh, the Jewish organizations there. And of course, the the papers loved it and everything. And it's, uh, I mean, if it would have worked, it would have been great. But now they've made such atrocious remarks in regards to the the seventh massacre at seventh of October, and like put up pictures uh, like with a Jew and a Muslim hugging and like a crossover. Like you cannot put up this. And these are the people who led their project. Uh, with, uh, of course, with tax money. And uh, so the Jewish organizations uh, have withdrawn from the project now. I think this is the the main problem here is that the left and uh, not just the left, but the whole of society feels that it can't, it, it can't really criticize, it can't do something about it. So we, I was at the new, newly opened uh, Holocaust Museum in Stockholm, where I uh, interviewed Jonathan Friedland, who wrote a great book, called The Escape Artist about uh, Rudolf Verba, uh, who escaped Auschwitz, one out of maybe five Jews who escaped Auschwitz, uh, out of a total of five. And uh, he was the one who warned the world about the extent of the extermination of Jews and the machine, uh, and uh, saved lives of hundreds of thousands of uh, Hungarian Jews. But in any case, that, that's what we, we can do. We, we, we have like Holocaust museums, we have uh, remembrances, everything. But if it's not a neo-Nazi, and if it's not from the majority, uh, majority uh, population, that, that then like the answer is we, we don't have any answers. Then so you can put you can I mean you can pour how much money you want into a Holocaust museum, but if you can't uh, keep Jews, actual living Jews, safe on the streets in in Sweden, then what the hell are we doing? Yeah. That uh, that's very well put, and I uh, I really agree with your point about you know they use the the specter of the 1930s all the time you know the left and so called progressives in in political discussion, and it's almost like to them everything looks like the Holocaust except the worst attack on Jews since the Holocaust. Then you can't talk about the Holocaust. You can't talk about the 1930s. And in fact, in the week that we're speaking, the Guardian has published a piece saying. Um, the way in which Israel is talking about the 7th of October is an example of Holocaust exploitation. So there's this piece accusing Israelis of um, using the language of the Holocaust, for example, by saying that the 7th of October was the worst attack since the Holocaust, which it was. Uh, That's now being branded as Holocaust exploitation. And this is a newspaper, The Guardian, which has compared um, the vote for Brexit to 1930s Europe, which compared Trump to Hitler which said that Islamophobia is a new form of fascism. And something really, I I think, profoundly sinister and troubling is happening, which is that the Holocaust is being liberated from the Jews. So it's no longer their thing. It's no longer their experience. It's no longer a a part of their history and, of course, human history. Instead, it's been co-opted by the kind of influencers and the uh, the agenda setters and, and and the so-called left. It's been co-opted by them as an abstract tool that they can use to make their political points, to um, demonize certain uh, political opponents and so on. So there's this separation taking place. And I think we're seeing it quite explicitly over the past two weeks between Jewish people and the Holocaust and this kind of dismantling of Jewish people's position in history as the people who suffered under the worst crime in history and the kind of chipping away at that 
by people in the West. And I, I, I worry about the consequences of something like that, where the word, the 1930s, Holocaust, fascism are thrown around all the time. And yet when this happens, which to me is a bit like fascism, very much so, in fact, Hamas's attack on the Jewish civilians, uh, they look the other way, or they say it's a day of celebration, or they call it resistance. I mean, that's really messed up, isn't it? One of my uh, closest friends is a, uh, a Jewish Swede, uh, Adam Sveiman. Uh, he's the political editor at uh, Jeteborg's Posten. It's the l- largest daily newspaper in Gothenburg. And he's read a lot of the Holocaust. His family's history is steeped in it. I mean, it's, uh, uh, that's the reason he's uh, in, in Sweden. But one of the things he, he told me when we spoke about this was that uh, on the Eastern Front, when they ha- committed the mass murders uh, of Jews in those areas, and because they couldn't put them on trains to Auschwitz, the, the people perpetrating it, some of them went crazy. Some many of them had to be drunk, they had to be forced, some deserted and were shot themselves. I mean, I'm not saying everybody this happened with everyone, but many of the Nazis perpetrating the crimes were unhappy with, with doing it. They were not the diehard ideologues of uh, the SS, perhaps. But what was so chilling with uh, the attack on 7th of October, which is something that I think is hard to fathom is how glad people were and celebratory. And one of the, one of the killers uh, called his, his dad from, from a phone that he had stolen from one of his victims. And he bragged and he said, father, I've, I've, I've killed 10 Jews. Be proud of me, father. And uh, if it was spontaneous act of desecration of dead bodies when they were parading the dead bodies around in the streets. And I, I think that what part of the Holocaust was that they were, it was a part of deny they, they knew many of the people who lived close by. Now we know, and we, we knew back then, but they knew what was happening. And yet they didn't do anything or anything, but they, they tried to deny it. There was a part of denial. And so this is, I mean, I'm not saying that this is worse than the Holocaust, because of course it's a unique uh, event and, uh, and the scale of it is much, much larger. But the, there is a sinister quality when it comes to Islamic terrorism and Islamism that I, like my, the mind almost is reeling to like, can it really be this sinister? The, the level of it, and uh, I'm, I'm. Sometimes I think that uh, many of the left have a hard time. It's it's harder for them because these are the oppressed. These are the wretched of the earth. These are the these are the subaltern rising, and then to take in the level of evil that they commit. That they are not the saints, they are not the freedom fighters. It sort of it uh, it might cause havoc to you the whole way you see or the whole, your whole worldview. So it's harder for them. So they label Hamas right wing, for example. It's a common phrase. It's a right wing. They are conservative. Yeah, I, I want to see Roger Scrooge on uh, what what he would have said about that. I mean, uh, it's 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 so strange how how they try to apply those those things. And I, but 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 I think it's it threatens the left's worldview more to a degree. Yeah, the, the it's extraordinary what you say there about the the glee that some of the Hamas terrorists seemed to take when they were carrying out their massacre. It was it was really extraordinary. And what was remarkable was that they wore GoPro cameras. They filmed it. They put some of the scenes up on Telegram. Uh, as you say, they boasted on on WhatsApp and they boasted to their parents about how many Jews they'd killed. I mean, they were there was none of the denialism or the sneakiness of the Nazi regime. I think you're right. You know, these are very, very different events, although both have their founding origin in, in Jew hatred, they're, but they're very different events. But it's striking that, you know, the denialism that the Nazis engaged in trying to hide the truth of what they were doing uh, was not visible here. Instead, what we had here was celebration and pride in the fact that they were killing Jewish people and makes it so, so twisted and, and concerning. I, I want to ask you about the another response in Sweden to that horrific event. Um, you mentioned already the, the 
I think it was celebrities and um, writers and uh, uh, an assortment of people who who wrote a wrote a letter, signed a petition about Israel and, and Gaza. I want to ask you what they said and and also what they didn't say. I mean, we have a group here called Art in the UK called Artists for Palestine, who wrote an extraordinary letter that they all signed. Very very well known actors and writers and people signed it. It doesn't mention the word Hamas. It, 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 you know, it clears its throat by saying we're sorry about victims on both sides, but it's all about what Israel does. It's all about Israel's so-called genocide. Nothing about the act of genuinely genocidal terrorism, i.e. terrorism motivated by a desire to wipe out people on the basis of their race. Doesn't mention it. Glosses over it, moves on as quickly as you like from that, as if it's something they either don't want to contemplate or they can't contemplate. It, it, is, it, was the letter in Sweden similar? Was there an avoidance of the truth of what's happening there? It sounds very similar. And I think there are, it might even be that the Swedish letter is a knockoff uh, from the English, as so much uh, in Sweden is knockoffs of. Uh, uh, things from uh, the USA or, or Britain, but they didn't. Men- they don't mention that. And as I said, I, I, I looked through what these artists, soccer players, and uh, authors had written previously, and none of them had written anything of the massacre. So it's it, it didn't even exist. What happened, I think, was that uh, when the massacre occurred it was sort of like the berlin wall coming down in a sense in that it is it's a shock to the if you're invested in the the narrative of israel being an imperialist state crusader state or a, a colonialist and it's uh, occupy they are occupiers oppressors and then you see this atrocity it's very hard to maintain uh maintain that narrative and then came the hospital bombing or the alleged hospital bombing and 500 people were dead so it was said and israel had done that and it's very human then to to think like um, of course it was awful people thought but it's also a relief because now you can maintain maintain your narrative so you people jumped at it and that was when the appeals were come were started to come because of that uh, the, the hospital bombing which turned out to be a propaganda piece uh, from Hamas. And the rocket, as it seems, came from uh, Islamic Jihad. Uh, So because, of course, they are using uh, substandard rockets because they are using materials that are uh, from, should be put to better use for weapons and they're building bad rockets. So that's why they, they made these appeals and, and they didn't care. And then it's just what, what is the safest, uh, like possible way to say, end the suffering of the world. That's the best world peace now. Uh, that's also good. But then like stop, uh, the children haven't done anything in Gaza. And of course that's true. But when you enter, if you are, uh, if you concern yourself only with looking beautiful, sexy, making good music or kicking a ball around, that's fine. It's fine. It's not fine. I'm. I'm very. I'm. I'm not fine with uh, the way our culture is. But let's say it's fine. But when you enter the political world, you are obliged to know the issue. And if you don't, you're dangerous. You're using your clout from another world, and you're using it, and you're making the world worse. It's not innocent. It's not empathetic. It's not. It's not compassionate. You're being used for a propaganda machine and, and, and you're too stupid or too ignorant or too uninterested to even care. And that was what happened here in Sweden. And so, I mean, some people know precisely what they're doing, but many of them don't. But that's not an excuse. Get ahead of postage rate increases this year with Stamps.com. It's like your own personal post office. Sign up with promo code PROGRAM for a four-week trial plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com code PROGRAM. 
If you're a regular listener to this show or a regular reader of Spiked, why not become a Spiked supporter? Spiked Supporters is our thriving community of people who donate to Spiked. Anyone who gives £5 or more a month or £50 or more a year can become a Spiked supporter and get access to lots of exciting perks. Spiked supporters can comment on articles, get free and discounted tickets to events, get a discount on all items in our shop and bookmark articles as you browse. This is our way of saying thank you to all of you who fund our work. Spiked is completely free and yet you still hand over your hard-earned cash to make sure that anyone, anywhere can read us and listen to us. We're incredibly grateful for your generosity. If you don't give to Spiked yet, now is the perfect time to start. Just go to spiked-online.com slash supporters to set up your donation and your Spike supporters account. That's spiked-online.com slash supporters. Absolutely. Um, I, I, I want to ask you about identity politics and identity politics in Sweden, because it's not something I know much about in the Swedish context. My understanding is that Sweden has traditionally been a homogenous country. Um, it worked on that basis that, you know, um, it was a pretty well-contained country with a f- world-famous welfare state or a system of uh, government assistance, consensus politics, and so on. But I think, uh, well, I know things have changed quite a lot over the past five or 10 years, maybe longer. Um, but one of the things that struck me since the 7th of October, but I've been thinking about it for longer than that, is the, is the way in which identity politics has rehabilitated not only racial thinking more broadly, but anti-Semitism specifically. Because as you were saying earlier, you know, they look upon a conflict like the one in the Middle East as the wretched of the earth versus the imperial aggressor. They, they, they manifest their obsession with privileged and oppressed onto every issue. You know, you're either in this box, you're you're oppressed and therefore you're good and you deserve our sympathy and our support, or you're in this box, you're privileged and you deserve hatred and contempt. Now, of course, they say that in relation to the Middle East and they've been saying it there for many years, but they say it in relation to domestic events at home as well. You know, Muslims are oppressed, trans people are oppressed um, and so on, but white men, heterosexual Jewish, you know, the hyper-privileged ones in our society, the Jews, you know, they're problematic. So they rehabilitate an anti-Semitic atmosphere. I, I wonder if if you think there has been, alongside the rise, the problematic rise of radical Islam in Sweden and other European countries, have identity politics contributed to this new racism as well, especially to the return of anti-Semitism? Yes, I, I, and but I would say that it's um, if your worldview consists of the the seven ways to be discriminatory in, in according to the discrimination laws enacted in two thousand nine in Sweden, I think, I think it's two thousand and ten in in Britain, but they are have had similar consequences. Uh, ha- it's very hard to combat the the existing anti-semitism because uh, and this is a way like if you, if you go on a ground level many teachers are, are saying and are bowing down to the demands of their students that why are the jews so special why are why are why are is the holocaust so special why why don't you talk about the genocide being perpetrated against the palestinians the nakba in 1948 and Many teachers have no answer, and some of the, some of the answer is maybe we should update. There's been a bit we should update how we talk about these things and be more uh, um, in, integrate the concerns of our new constituents, our new uh, citizens. And I think instead, I mean, you should double down. Of course, if you if you're going to be integrated. Uh, into the Swedish society, you have to be integrated into the way we uh, talk about history and the, the the lessons. I mean, of course, there are things that you should learn about about other people's traumas and everything. But the way it's been used, identity policy being used, is basically to uh, delegitimize the Jewish history and uh, the teaching of the Holocaust. And as you said earlier, they've sort of reevaluated the Holocaust in in a totally different way. So it's 
the Holocaust is about all the minorities. And then you have the Jews being sort of a privileged minority and they are white adjacent or white passing. There was a, and that's often like an accusation. It's a strange accusation, but it's an accusation often being leveled against Jewish people. I mean, one thing that I find a little bit hopeful in Sweden is that, and different, is that I haven't seen any uh, post-colonial, post-structuralist, post-modernist, anti-racist, Black Lives Matter uh, enthusiast winning a public debate since basically 2013 in Sweden. And multiculturalists is, have, have gone to the same... I mean, these people are never winning. They are They are constantly losing. Every time they step into the public sphere, they are losing. They're losing in Swedish Twitter, they're losing in social media. They're losing in the media, in the media, in the mainstream media, in the politics. But they are very strong still within the uh, government, governmental agencies. And they are, it's like some, they are like zombies. I mean, and you have these people and this is a sort of a connection because these people are, are running things in at the university. They are, uh, their theories are how the discrimination laws are being enforced at universities, in the governmental agencies, and even in businesses. And they are also, if you, if you look at their social media accounts during the 7th of October, they are celebrating the massacre. And these are the people who are teaching, uh, who are teaching teachers and social workers and police officers and academics about uh, about human rights and uh, discrimination and yet they're celebrating a massacre so it's it, it's very it's a very strange way because if you would look at the um, in the public sphere in the public debate they are nowhere to be seen and they never step up to the plate so the, and, and and i think that's a little bit different if you compare it to the united states or 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 britain but they uh, our identity politics uh, activists they are losers and cowards, and they hide behind uh, their paychecks from from taxes. Um, it, it, yes, zombie politics is a good way to describe these people because they're not particularly popular with significant sections of the public anyway. And one always thinks one has beaten them in an argument and pushed them aside. And yet there they are, uh, you know, traipsing through public life as as always. It's very curious and interesting. I want to I want to ask you about what's happening in Sweden in terms of crime and integration, some of the things you've mentioned already. And it does, it's very interesting to me because, you know, your current prime minister, um, Ulf Christensen, I'm sure I pronounced that terribly, and your uh, former prime minister, the leader of the Social Democrats you've mentioned. Um, what's interesting about both of those, I think, one coming from the centre-right, one coming from more of the left, is that both of them have raised concerns about the failure of integration in Sweden. So both of them have quite openly said, look, we have an issue in this country because we took in very significant numbers of migrants, uh, especially during the migrant crisis of 2015 um, from Muslim countries. And we didn't integrate them at all, really. You know, didn't integrate them into the labor market, didn't integrate them into cultural values, didn't say to them, you know, listen up, you're in Sweden now, so this is what we think and this is how we behave. I mean, if anyone had said that, it's very possible they would be accused of uh, racist assimilationist tactics or some other kind of ridiculous accusation would be made. So in terms of that discussion, you know, Sweden was once seen by Guardianistas in particular as the dream country, the welfare state, a, a spotless, wonderful country. You know, columnists like Polly Toynbee at The Guardian were forever gushing over Sweden. They, you know, you got the impression that the entire British middle class would just have up sticks and moved to Sweden if they could. But it's changed a lot now. And even The Guardian has articles about the fact that outside of Mexico, Sweden has the most grenade and bomb attacks. The fact that shootings have gone through the roof, the fact that gang crime is rather out of control. How bad have things got? There and and what is the discussion around it? Do, do people share the sentiment of the current PM and the former PM that you know integration has failed and we need to rethink what we're doing? Yeah, and I mean people have been saying that that the integration has failed for a very long time, and uh, what's changed, I think, is the the hopelessness of it because Swedes are irrelevant 
Swedish culture is irrelevant in large swathes of Sweden. So the only thing that is relevant in those parts of Sweden is how can you uh, get governmental aid and what will the police do? And is there uh, like a social worker or something like that? And except for that, you don't have any really relationship to Sweden, Swedish people, Swedish language. So in in many areas, there are no native Swedish speakers. And uh, uh, and this this uh, sort of and and it used to be that you 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 come to a an area which is run down or socially economically challenged as we say in Sweden is a challenged area. Uh, it's challenged uh, not 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 really specifying what they are challenged by, but uh, it's challenged. And then you get a job and or education and you move somewhere someplace else. But what's happened in Sweden the last Uh, two decades, uh, or and especially the last ten years, is that you stu- you get stuck. So you you have nowhere to go, and and it's a combination of factors. But so we have a deepening of the segregation, and I, w- I would say that the integration is working fine in Sweden as well, because we have uh, I think half or more than half of the doctors in Sweden are foreign born and uh, and f- uh, educated in another country. We have a lot of people from earlier migrant cohorts that are integrated fine there, and they are they view themselves as Swedes, uh, and they are viewed as Swedes as well, and something else. I mean, as as I like my friend, uh, Jewish Swedish, he's both. I know a lot of people who have a background from U- former Yugoslavia or um, Greeks, Turks. They are viewed as, I mean, of course, you see that they come from, they have roots from somewhere else. But culturally, I mean, I would say that some of these sort of uh, stereotypes of uh, we are so tolerant and we take people in, some of it is true. It's just that the scale of it and the speed of it, uh, no country could have integrated. And and so the the difference between what uh, the left wing, when they are saying that integration hasn't worked, What they are really saying is that we should have had larger governmental programs. We should have had courses uh, in Swedish or maybe like oriented them in how we do here in Sweden, like the laws and everything. And what people more on the right are saying is that, yeah, that's good. That's fine with all all these uh, governmental programs and everything, but it wouldn't have made a difference if if you have uh 160,000 coming in a year to a small country uh you're not it, it doesn't matter whatever you do you don't have enough teachers uh, interpreters and then you would have to force majority swedes and uh, earlier waves of migrants to stick around to sort of be the vehicle for integration and of course people don't we move people move away i just spoke to uh, one of the a social worker sort of a guardianist, I would say, like he's, he's, he fits the bill with what he studied, what he's working with, like everything. And he, he just moved because of grenade violence. I mean, he has no problem with diversity, but he has kids. He doesn't want them to be blown up. So you have people moving out if they can. And then the people who are stuck, what are they going to, how are they going to integrate? Even if they are really willing and have the best of intentions, They're not going to learn Swedish. Their kids are not going to learn Swedish, and they're not going to become Swedish. Yeah, uh, it, it's interesting, intriguing, and worrying in in many ways as well. Um, I, I do see Sweden as a bit of a. I, I think it's clearer in Sweden in terms of what's at stake if a society doesn't know itself and understand itself, and is not willing to define itself whether that is to its own people or to newcomers or to migrant populations, a country that's not willing to say who it is and what it's for, I think is is in trouble. We have a very similar situation in, in Britain, but I, I see it quite starkly in Sweden. Um, you mentioned earlier Malmo, the city of Malmo, which is um, a really large city in Sweden. I think it's third after Stockholm and Gothenburg. It's, a, it's the third largest city. And um, there are big problems there. One thing I read about uh, a couple of years ago was that People were organizing kipper walks in um, Malmo. So people would wear a, a Jewish skullcap kipper and walk through the streets, Jews and non-Jews, in fact, to try and encourage confidence in the Jewish 
communities there that it was possible to still be visibly Jewish, even though things were going getting a bit unstable and a bit unpredictable. We've seen also in Sweden, we, there have essentially been Islamic riots. You know, there have been uprisings of Muslim youths, especially in response to the burnings of, of Korans. And there have been very serious riots in recent years. And they've been happy. I, I mean, some of them, it's fun. I mean, it's uh, you, you can see some of them uh, when they're when they're trying to kill uh, police. They're glad. So, is it fair to say, looking at all that, is it fair to say that there, you might be moving to a situation where there are two Swedens? So there will be places like Malmo, which might just be given over to people who who haven't integrated into the Swedish way of life, or who, who you know, where the failure of integration, as as you say, everyone's calling it, where that's more explicit. You know, Malmo might just become a place where it's known for that, whereas Stockholm might become, I don't know, more Swedish, might maintain or retain some of those kind of values and that culture. Is there kind of almost going to be an unspoken uh, partition in the country between those communities where, as you say, Swedish is rarely spoken, Swedish values are not adhered to, and they have become almost like cut-off multicultural bubbles? Um, is that the divide you think that Sweden can look forward to? Or it won't be the singular country that it's been for so long, but it will be this kind of slightly broken nation with different communities? I think we're all, we have been there for a while. And you don't visit these areas uh, if you don't have any very specific errand. So there's no mixing. And uh, you go to different schools and uh, you live in different areas. And I, I do think that Malmö is also a majority minority town, a city in Sweden. And uh, if you look at the young population, it's up to 70% have, uh, are either foreign-born or have parents who are foreign-born. So it's been much more rapid in Sweden than people said. If you would have said that this is a projection I see, and you would have said like 30 years ago, people would have just shaken their heads and said like that's fear-mongering and sort of, you're sort of vaguely racist. I'm not sure in which way, but it seems very racist to even suggest that that's the level uh, of change and the pace of the change. And when it comes to integration, the, the, we have sort of a, we are we are succeeding in giving in uh, when it comes to giving migrants work. It's just that uh, they they are succeeding. Uh, they, they, we also have a lot of challenges, but it's actually some of it has gone better than it used to. But it's uh, it doesn't seem to change the radicalism of of the Islamic uh, community. Uh, this also also has been increasing. So more work and more Islamism and also more crime. So even while grades have been going up in certain areas, which are having a lot of trouble, or more of the uh, pupils are succeeding in in school they are still more willing to join gangs and the criminal clans are so so it's it's not clear cut and also and then we have the shadow economy which is huge in sweden and and you have people who who, who are rarely spoken about for example the the russian and the russian speaking minority in sweden and uh, just came out a book uh, about that and it's a very unknown story because they're not part of the, the clan warfare or the gang. So they're not as spe spectacular, but there's a lot of violence and they, uh, they are, uh, they're being used as slave labor. And, and the, this is something that we see in lots of part, lot, lot of Swedish society in, in the job, uh, work sector. And this is, I mean, the people who organized, for example, the, the Kippa walks, it's a good, it's a good symbolic gesture. But the same people were at the same time arguing that we should open the borders totally. So they didn't acknowledge where the problem came from. So the, the same people that were wearing, some of them were walking and, and writing about it. They were willfully ignorant of the reasons behind the anti-Semitism, and they still are some of them. And they haven't acknowledged what they, how they uh, contributed to the problem. And the same people who uh, made the Swedish job market liberalized and privatized and made it uh, very easy for companies to just do whatever and import uh, people from across the world to do something that someone 500 meters from you can do just as easily. 
they've opened the gates to basically we are having slave labor or indentured servants uh, doing a lot of the chores and and uh, and works and jobs in Sweden. And that's sort of the that's like the third Sweden because these people are working. They're working around the clock. But they're not nobody's trying to integrate them. Nobody's doing a thing for them basically. So we are not we 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 are a country in need of an uh, we haven't uploaded the the latest update to our um the way we should view ourselves and uh, people are getting hurt um yeah i think it's i mean it is good to hear that you know integration is working in some ways as you say there are significant numbers of um foreign origin doctors for example people who are contributing to swedish society but then there have been, I think, some catastrophic failures in other ways as well. And there has been uh, either an unwillingness or an inability to draw people into Swedish society, or maybe it's just an impossible task, given, as you say, the speed with which uh, th- this new intake occurred. Um, you know, as someone who comes from a part of London where everyone's parents were foreign-born, including my own, I do, I do know that it is possible to have communities that come from somewhere else, but can create a sense of belonging. And the question I think is how we do that in in the 21st century, when so many of the cultural trends are dragging us away from being part of society and telling us to celebrate this, recognize that, validate this identity. And it it becomes a very divisive spectacle. Um, My last question for you, Ivar, is on troublemaking. We started off with this. Uh, You said it's fairly easy to be a troublemaker in Sweden. Uh, um, I assume you you mean that Sweden, I think Sweden is known as being a pretty conformist country. Um, I've never really bought into that, but I think that's because all the Swedes I know are quite contrarian people. So whenever I go there, I just hear all these controversial opinions. So I've never seen the kind of... um, the conformist nature of Swedish society. Um, but on troublemaking, I mean, you you do, you do are a troublemaker, and I, I mean that as a compliment. I think they <laughs> troublemakers are essential these days. But also there has been a pushback in other parts of Swedish society as well. There has even been flickers of populism in Sweden, which surprised everyone. You know, people never thought that populism would even make it to, to, to nice, quiet Sweden. You know, the Sweden Democrats, um, who are often referred to as far right uh, uh, or, you know, just right wing. The Sweden Democrats have done well in recent elections. Um, people are obviously tired of what's going on and are looking for an avenue or a way in, in which to register their tiredness, register the fact that they don't like what's happening. Do you, do you foresee more of that happening? Do you, do you foresee more of a kind of populist pushback against the establishment like we've seen in Britain with Brexit, uh, in Italy with Georgia Maloney or in America with the vote for Donald Trump? In various different ways, people have registered their displeasure with the technocratic elites. Do you think a similar dynamic will entrench itself further in Sweden? Yes, and I, I think because of the pace, I mean, Sweden is one of the most heterogeneous countries now in uh, in all of the western world i think austria and uh, it's up there with uh, britain and france but it's like happened in 20 years instead of uh, 70 years and what you can see is that basically immigrants vote left and children of immigrants vote left in sweden and it's that's so the social democratic party their constituents are completely different now than it used to be and people uh, of ethnic Swedish origin or of European uh, ancestry, I mean, immigrants from other parts of Europe tend to vote right. So you also have sort of a a divide, a new divide in Swedish politics. And that divide is very visible now. Politics is taking, is changing a lot in Sweden. You can go on, you can be elected in the municipality on the Palestine question. So if you're partaking in these demonstrations, and you're showing that to your constituents, you can, people are getting elected on those issues. And I think populism will increase a lot, but it, not just on the right, it's also on the left. And you had left-wing politicians partaking in spreading the propaganda that the Swedish state are kidnapping Muslim kids. Uh, they had a Linda Snecker, who's the spokesperson for um, the left-wing party in parliament. So she's not a nobody. When she's talking to constituents in the challenged areas where lots of people are foreign-born, 
she's using those kinds of uh, that kind of rhetoric and you could you could say that's populism as well and you can also see that the agrarian parts more agrarian parts of sweden have turned from the old we of course have a proportional electoral system so we have more parties than, than you have and but one it used to be that the center party is the old farmers coalition party and it used to be huge because there were a lot of farmers and now they they've shrunk them but on the in the countryside they used to be big but now we can see that the Sweden Democrats is now has taken over that role so you can see that all the cities are, are red and uh, then the rich suburbs where the, there's a lot of people they are blue and if you go a little bit further out they vote for the Sweden Democrats that's then that's the largest party so there that's also dynamic that the people who are sort of in the Swedish rust belt so to speak where there's not where the industries have left uh, they're voting for the Sweden Democrats to a much larger degree now and you could just between the latest election and the election before it's very visible that this is a, a, a new dimension in Swedish politics Eva thank you very much thank you Thank you for listening to The Brendan O'Neill Show. We'll be back with another guest and more discussion. Don't forget to subscribe. And in the meantime, keep reading Spiked at www.spiked-online.com.